want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. From Showtime and A24. What do you love most about Whitney? Comes a new series unlike any other. Where do I even start? Academy Award winner Emma Stone. I like how you fight for us. Nathan Fielder. Money doesn't really matter when it's about doing the right thing. And Benny Safdie. You guys are strong, right? At the end of the day, you're going to survive, right? Next question. New episodes of The Curse, streaming now on Paramount Plus, only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. Welcome back to part two with Captain Sterling Gillum. Again, big shout out to E3 Aviation Association for making this all happen. Down at Pensacola, we went down to the National Naval Aviation Museum down there. You can find out more about E3 down the link below, but they're there to walk along your aviation journey, whether you're just starting out or you're a retired airline pilot, military pilot, and everything in between. So check out E3 Aviation. I have that link down below. That said, let's jump into the podcast. Part two with Captain Sterling Gillum. It is impressive to see, you know, it all kind of come together and then it's able to be executed anywhere in the world. So on that note, I want to kind of jump into some of your deployments, sure. some time floating around on that big old boat. We can talk yeah. about some of the landings, because again, as I mentioned before, you have a few landings. Well, my, my, my adult life was spent on those flight decks, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Both the landing signal officer time, as you might imagine, when I was in that training role and supervisory role, I spent a significant amount of time aboard aircraft carriers overseeing those landing operations. I do want to jump, is that something that, like we in the Air Force, you'd have a, you know, you start as a wingman, then a flight lead, then an instructor pilot. Right. Do you have to have a certain number of hours before you start that LSO program? And really more it's exposure. It's literally a number of landings, recoveries, and they're tracking. You'll literally start out being the book writer because okay. every one of those landings is graded. Well, the, the controlling landing signal officer will turn over and, and give his LSO shorthand about what that approach was, high, low, right, left, fast, slow. And then you'll start waving in the daytime and your airplane, you'll start waving nighttime and then you'll be the backup LSO and then the team lead. And then ultimately when you get uh, my, my third deployment, I was the air wing landing signal officer. So I was attached to the staff and oversaw the entire crew of landing signal officers, about 15 or 20 of them, that worked for me in those four-man rotations. We had two LSOs, so I would take the even days, my other LSO would take the odd days, and we flew, because they're always right. flying orders, so the days we weren't waving, we were flying, and then my final job was down in San Diego overseeing the entire 
uh, thing, and that, that was fun in and of itself. But you're correct, you move up through those qualifications in the, in the LSO world. And so if I go out there as an LSO on one day, uh, I assume guys have to have different, they have to have obviously different qualifications and then yeah. also maintain currency. So Correct. it's probably different people on the radio controlling, you kind of cycle yes through. Yes. But as an LSO, like again, that's the guy who's reached the peak right underneath the air wing. But as an LSO, you have experience in all the aircraft that are going to As an airwing LSO, you would. So you have to, again, have that knowledge and yep. then control. Is that the right term? Correct. Very Con good. Yeah, control those aircraft at a certain point to be able to have the recency and the currency and, with each and one of those. you've got to be prepared for emergencies. If an airplane, say, it loses a landing gear and you don't have the ability to divert, you have to have the ability to barricade an airplane. Uh, my One of the reasons I became an LSO my very, very first deployment on USS Nimitz were in the Eastern Mediterranean. It was an A3 whale, which has long since been retired from service, but it was a non-ejection seat airplane. And the pilot was having trouble coming back aboard. He boltered several times, had been waved off. They sent him to airborne refuel to tank. The tanker was sour. We were beyond divert distance, so they tried to barricade him and it ultimately ended up a failed barricade where the aircraft actually caught the upper loading strap of the barricade. The airplane crashed, seven people passed away. I realized then that I wasn't even waving at night yet, but I realized the consequences of the LSO business was deadly serious and I, I made a uh, decision at that point to be the very best landing signal officer I could be and ultimately I ended up kind of pursuing that path and that, that opened up other opportunities for me. But that tragic event that happened in January of 1987, um, you know, kind of left a mark with me about how important it was for the landing signal officer to be able to do his job, especially when time, you know, the conditions may not be perfect. An airplane may come back single engine. They may have some other problems. Pilot may have vertigo. And that is literally when the landing signal officer can jump in the cockpit and say the right things and provide the right guidance to the pilot to get that um, crewman back aboard. That's huge. I always say the minute I got on a tanker in the weather, it was automatic. I was spatial, the spatial disorientation. I always think I'm in 90 degrees of bank, which is really, really a painful spot to be in. As you get more experience, like I could recognize when I felt like I was in a turn, it was actually me climbing on the tanker. Right and things like that, but you have some techniques to kind of recage. Right. Or if you're watching your wingman do it and you recognize, hey, he's climbing, he probably thinks we're in a turn right now. You can recognize some yeah. of those things, but to do it at that level, bringing a plane back onto the boat is the next level. And well, I try, and in vertigo wouldn't happen that often to that many people. I was fortunate enough not to have it, but I can remember vividly, if you fly in the Southern California operating area, there's a thing called marine layer. <laughs> and you'll be flying around. It might be a beautiful moonlit night, and there's a, an undercast at about 1,500 feet. And you're just driving around, and it's time to come back to the ship, and you descend down to 1,200 feet where you're, now you're beneath the uh, undercast, and you realize you left your instrument scan in the paraloft, right. uh, it's, uh, it's debilitating and, and you're looking at this little point of light and it's darker than the inside of a basketball because that wonderful moonlight you didn't have is underneath 500 feet of scud, is above 500 feet of scud. I, I, those were interesting times. But the yep. landing signal officer plays a role. They know that that's their opportunity to get involved in the past and again, safe and expeditious recovery 
I'm just thinking too, you know, things being able to compartmentalize is a big piece of this. But guys and gals who come back, weather's bad. Right. They have to bolter, they get waved off, they're going around, now they're tight on gas. Maybe they had an emergency, right. maybe they didn't. All these things start to snowball pretty quickly. And I've heard you know, stories where, again, bolter, bolter, really tight on gas, uh, yeah. and then... And that's where the LSO can make it, because there's only a finite amount of fuel airborne, especially if you're working what we call blue water operations, where you don't have the luxury of divert. That's, that's kind of high stakes poker there and the LSO's performance counts. The other thing is, and you flew this in your time in the Air Force, those long missions in Southwest Asia to prosecute targets in Afghanistan, you launch off a carrier in the Northern Indian Ocean, Northern Arabian Sea, you got an hour commute to work. Right. You're flying an hour over Pakistan before you even get to your first refueling point. You'll refuel, do the first half of your combat mission, refuel a, a second time, do the second half, and then top off one last time, you're coming back to the ship six and a half, seven hours later, you're tired, you may have had some operational stuff going that got you amped up, so you're already kind of edged up. And because it's a six and a half hour mission, invariably it's gonna be nighttime when you get back right. to the ship. I, one Always. of the things I saw, those, long, those longer missions translated to more uh, nighttime ops for us, but you know. You do what you got to do. Yeah, it's a, again a, a whole other world. Tankers, when I say tankers, I'm thinking a KC-10, KC-135, yeah. which obviously when you're in AOR, that's what it that's is. Exactly but what you're on the ship, you don't have a 135. It's called organic tanking, and you would modern day, you'll take an F-18 Super Hornet and load it with five drop tanks. We call it a five web, and it'll get airborne with about 26,000 pounds of gas to to give, and there'll be a recovery tanker that will circle overhead. And if someone, let's say someone's having trouble getting aboard, they bolter, that airplane will start to hawk that guy and will follow him around the pass such that if he bolters a second time or at a point where he needs fuel, as soon as he or she misses the landing area, that tanker will be in the you know, one to two o'clock position, seven to 800 feet above him. So it's an easy expeditious rendezvous. Hose is already streamed and as you're ready to give gas and that, that in and of itself is kind of an art too and goes to that whole choreography of deployed carrier operations that make it such a special and unique place to operate, just to, that combat efficiency that is begat from knowing what you're supposed to do at the, the entire team. And anyone can be flying that tanker on that day. It's just probably a, a duty that, hey, instead of going flying It, it is, line, though, the night, tank, night recovery tanker, that takes some quals because odds are daytime, easy stuff. Nighttime, you don't want to be that young nugget, we would call it, new, new pilot that doesn't stream the drogue correctly, ends up with the sour, because you quickly run out of options if that tanker is unable to get that gas to the person or can't facilitate the quick rendezvous that you have. Yeah, interesting world. All right, so I had to, I had to jump back. I wanted to talk about your operations. I don't want to skip too far forward, but you know, just taking a look in your office and some of the previous conversations we've had, it seemed like 2001, you captured the uh, the cable for the thousandth time. I did, I did. 2001 was an interesting deployment. It was, ended up being my uh, sixth deployment, uh, extended deployment, obviously a lot of time on aircraft carriers. Uh, it was USS Enterprise. Uh, I had the good fortune of being 
the commanding officer of one of the eight squadrons embarked VAQ-141, which is the ES-6B Prowler Squadron in that air wing. And again, in the embarrassment of riches category of my Navy career, it was a great deployment. We left out of Norfolk. Um, we operated in the Mediterranean. We pulled into phenomenal Liberty ports. We did NATO operations in the North Sea, <laughs> low levels yeah. over Scotland. It was just spectacular. And then about mid-deployment, we went through the Suez Canal and into the Arabian Gulf and started uh, enforcing the no-fly zone. This is the summer of 2001. And a lot of people don't realize uh, we were in our 10th year of Operation Southern Watch, which is the enforcement of the no-fly zone that began after Operation Desert Storm in 1991. And we're flying combat sorties daily in support of coalition assets, Air Force assets, and Navy assets because we were the only electronic attack platform in town since the Air Force had gotten out of the EF-111 business. So we were pretty busy in fact, the la you know, it was, it was great. But somewhere in that uh, time frame, about a month after we got into the AOR, I uh, managed to uh, hang around long enough to record my 1,000th arrested landing, which was, which was great. No, no big deal. <laughs> no big deal. I'm kind of curious, going through the Suez Canal, I know the, without jumping to too many classified levels, et cetera, but that's a choke point in my mind. And it is. You have a and, and they go through, through and there's a whole security piece. There's your allies on both sides of the canal. So they're mindful of that. The, uh, you've got support ships in front, but you are very vulnerable. You are very, very vulnerable. In fact, coming back from that deployment, which is a story in of itself, we were not going to retrace our steps through the Suez Canal because we'd already kind of tipped our hand coming through. So as we were leaving to come home from that deployment, we were going to go around South Africa, which is a long way to go. But I was really, really excited because we were going to pull into Cape Town, South Africa, which I never made it there, but it's purported to be one hell of a Liberty port. Yeah. Why didn't you guys make it there? We didn't make it there because um, our last day of operations in Southern Watch happened to be 9 September. The 10th of September, we're transiting the Straits of Hormuz outbound. And that's, that's another little interesting area, body of water yeah. to navigate a, a Navy aircraft carrier through. And on the afternoon of September 11th, we're steaming at best speed and the Enterprise could put up a pretty big wave um, off the coast of Oman, heading southwest for the aforementioned Cape Town, South Africa. It was a no-fly day. Um, and we ended up um, watching 9-11 unfold. It was late afternoon for us. Uh, we have the ability of satellite TV, and we watched, like everybody else, those airplanes attack the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, and we quickly realized that our deployment was not over. Before the first tower, uh, before the second tower had fallen, we'd already reversed course and headed to a spot 200 miles south of Pakistan in the Northern Arabian Sea, because we knew, didn't need the Pentagon to tell us that this was probably Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. And interestingly, because we were doing Operation Southern Watch, and that was a 1-0 presence, our relief that was relieving us so we could go home, the USS Carl Vinson and her air wing uh, 
was also in the area. So at nightfall on 9-11, you had two Navy aircraft carriers, Enterprise and her air wing, air wing 8, USS Carl Vinson and her air wing, air wing 11, on site, ready to do the nation's bidding at a moment's notice without having to fly from um, Missouri. And I, I've always kind of marveled that, you know, that kind of validates the forward presence mindset. I will say about that day, uh, I felt guilty because I'm sitting in the safest place on the planet, a Navy warship 200 miles in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and our country's under attack. My family, my children were less than three years old at the time. I just felt guilty because of the uncertainty that they must have been going through during this tumultuous time. I, I was where I wanted to be, where I needed to be, because I'd spent my life training for that. But at the same time, I felt, felt guilty about it. I'd been in the Pentagon the tour prior. I knew the building very well. I knew where the plane hit. And, and I knew the consequences that, that it was not going to be a good outcome all around. So, but that was a very interesting day, to say the least. A couple of things, too, because it's not like you can call back home. Uh, no, you know, obviously there's security pieces, but also just the logistics of making that happen. But you got to press forward. And you mentioned the Pentagon, knowing the layout. You were yep. en route to a I, I was of at the end you... of my I was at the end of my command tour, and I had orders to go back to the Pentagon to work on the Navy staff. And I knew where that staff was. And literally that airplane hit right underneath the offices that I would be occupying. And I knew the person that I was relieving. And I thought for about a day that one of my good friends and the person that I was going to relieve on post there had managed to get himself killed. Fortunately, uh, he was not in the building that day. And the loss of life in the Pentagon, while significant, was, was reduced in, for a number of reasons. They had just recently renovated that section of the Pentagon and it wasn't fully populated. And the renovations they had done, there was a lot of health and safety components that actually saved lives that day. It's, it seems like it was yesterday, but now the interesting piece too is there are a lot of people that are now serving the military that were born after 9-11. You know, were. it was a catalyst for, that's you are right. in, it was, a, it was a catalyst for me to right. join and a lot of other people to join. And now that's kind of far removed. It's in the history books now. But it, it, it did catalyze, it probably played a part in you becoming yeah, in the military and going to ROTC. Uh, but what's interesting is we've been in conflict for, uh, for the balance of that time. Since 9-11, we were in a constant state. I, I was back in that same body of water six years later, this time on USS Dennis with Air Wing 9, flying over the same piece of Afghanistan that I flew on on night, night one of Operation Enduring Freedom, which for your viewers is, the, is our response to 9-11, where we went and took the fight to Al-Qaeda on 7 October, uh, 2001. Because it was just under a month from 9-11 to when we started combat Correct. operations. Yep. What were you guys doing in that month in between? We were operating in concert with Carl Vinson um, in that area, staying sharp, a lot of operations. We're practicing air to ground as much as you can practice right. air to ground <laughs> on a ship 200 miles at sea. We knew there weren't a lot of air defenses and we knew they really didn't have an air force. So we were focused on 
delivering our ordinance as efficiently as possible. And we knew we'd probably end up in a, a close air support scenario pretty quickly thereafter. Interestingly, Carl Vinson, which their admiral was the senior strike group, so they took the day page and operated from noon until midnight, and Enterprise and Cagate took the midnight to noon piece, which actually worked out in our favor because it put us on the same time zone as USS Central Command operating out of Tampa, and it just yeah. it was we went nocturnal for for a for a while there. Our saying was always night trains the right train. If yeah, you it want, was. If you want, it ended, and we ended up. I was very proud of the um, the air wing. We we'd had a lot of practice as we talked about in Southern Watch. We were delivering a fair amount of ordnance in Iraq, very very underpublicized, but we felt pretty combat proficient, certainly around the boat, in delivering effects appropriately so we picked up in Afghanistan right where we left off in Iraq and and pretty quickly along with uh, other coalition forces there toppled the Taliban and had them on the run pretty quickly. You mentioned it too Operation Southern Watch, Operation Northern Watch not that it's a, a forgotten operation or operations but it's not talked about a lot but again since since the desert storm we've been we a spent a decade constantly doing stuff there. Right. And if you think about it, we've been in Southwest Asia in force since since '91. Yeah, haven't left. Yeah. I'm probably not leaving anytime soon. What were some of those initial operations for enduring freedoms uh, in for Afghanistan? Enduring freedom. Well, the problem we wanted to what little bit of IADs they had that was taken out, and then it was just supporting uh, the boots on the grounds, and then the strike fighters. And at the time, CAG 14 had the F-14s, two F-14 squadrons and two F-18 squadrons, and they were very good at delivering uh, precision-guided weapons. The F-14, those airplanes had been modded for air-to-ground, and they had uh, lantern pods, and they, were, they, were, they could carry a good bomb load, and they could deliver with some pretty significant, uh, pretty significant effects. Interesting time. So you jump from that deployment ended up going to the Pentagon I did. after that. I went to the Pentagon. In fact, when I first went there, I was working in a swing space in Crystal City. But people may remember the Phoenix Project. They rebuilt that section of the Pentagon, that wedge of the Pentagon, in less than a year. And we were back in our offices uh, by October of 2002. And the Phoenix was rebuilding the, it, the rebuilding Pentagon. Rebuilding the Pentagon back. And so I was back where in the portion of the building that was actually attacked less than a year later. That's wild. What were you doing in the Pentagon? I, at that time, I finished my command tour and I was the resource sponsor, the requirements officer for the Airborne Electronic Attack Community, the A6B Prowler that provides electronic attack for the United States Navy. Uh, and as such, as that airplane was getting a little bit older, we were trying to decide as a Navy what the replacement for the venerable prowler would be. And there were, there were a lot of options on the table, but as you can see, we ultimately decided to go to a Super Hornet variant of uh, the Super Hornet, the, the F-18F, essentially took an F-18F, uh, put some stuff from the EA-6B in it and made it an E-18G, which is a two-seat electronic attack airplane that's flying to this day. So for our listeners who may be not too familiar with it, when you see a Growler uh, F-18 right. or a Super Hornet you know, right. strike, can you talk to me a little bit about the differences and what those roles are uh, between well, the different platforms? Well, there are three versions of the Super Hornet. The E, which is a single seat, 
uh, strike fighter, which is a stretched out, uh, longer, heavier version of the straight F-18. Uh, and the, the, the difference between the E and the F is just a backseater. Um, the difference between the F and the G is they took um, in the gun palette in the nose, that came out of the E-18G and they replaced it with ALQ-218, which is the jamming system for the Prowler. And then they took the football on the Prowler, which is the receiver system in the vertical tail, and they ported that to the stations one and 11 on the wingtip. So one of the things about E-18G Growler, it only has nine weapon stations as opposed to the 11 that exist on the E and the F. And now the, the backseater, the weapon systems operator, who's called an electronic uh, warfare officer in the E-18G, the EWO is running that electronic attack system and they do their job with the combination of kinetics, harm missile, and jamming pods, literally the same jamming pods that we carried on the EA-6B Prowler. Uh, and with the nice addition of being able to carry air-to-air -air ordnance, um, AIM-120 you know, AIM AMRAM missiles such that the electronic attack airplane could protect itself, something we didn't enjoy in the ES-6B. We always had to have a section of yeah. F-16s or F-18s uh, provide uh, high-value combat air patrol for us. Yeah, it's nice to have the self-protection feature. It it's kind of a break glass. Hopefully it doesn't come to that right, point. Right, exactly. But, uh, you know, working in the Pentagon, working in procurement or requirements, you saw the Growler come to life, and I know you ended up flying the Growler, but I think it's important to talk to you because we're, again, kind of off-camera talking about this. Things it, don't happen fast no, usually. No, don't happen, in the in the, and it, this is just one more chapter in the Embarrassment of Riches saga. But I mean, the requirements are, and it's a big deal job because every requirement in the Navy, every warfighting thing, every piece of hardware, it maps to a warfighting requirement. We don't do these things for fun. We do them to provide the maximum effect for the taxpayer dollars. So as we got into replacing the ES-6B, there were a lot of options on the table, and we went to the E-18G, in part because the F-18 Super Hornet was already flying and proven. The ICAP-3 version of the Prowler was already flying and proven. It was essentially just a graceful rendezvous of those two technologies that allowed that airplane to reach its initial operating capability uh, very, very quickly. To wit, that decision brief was rendered 10 May 2002 to the Chief of Naval Operations. Six years and two months later, I had the opportunity during my last flying tour to fly the fourth production E-18G. That's light speed. There are people yeah. that toil for decades in the Pentagon and have nothing to show for it but an ulcer and gray hair. Um, this is something the Navy made a very, very good decision that was based on risk. What's the lowest risk, fastest alternative to replace the venerable but aging airplane? The, the prowlers that I flew later in my career, were, they were tired and they were vulnerable for a variety of reasons, not the least of which you're working in a 40-year-old airframe. Seeing it come to life that fast is pretty impressive. 
again, I keep, I, I bring up the KC46 a bunch and right. eventually I'll get someone to come on the podcast <laughs> to, to correct me, which I'm more than welcome. I always welcome that. But, you know, it shows the KC46 is a 767 platform. Right. It has been a commercial tanker. And while there are some differences with the Air Force variant, you know, 20, almost 20 years later, some of it was recompetes and challenges right. to contracts, et cetera, to be fair. But it still can't refuel an A-10. It still has challenges doing certain things. Yeah. And again, this is kind of a known known quantity. So to see the growler kind of come to life so fast is pretty impressive. And what was what was fun? The electronic attack community, because it was a small community in prowlers, and it remains a small community in growlers. It was single sided in one naval air station, for the Navy, and that was Whidbey Island, Washington State, a couple hours north of Seattle. So the community was very tight knit. To put that in perspective, I spent 15 of my 30 years in the Navy, in Oak Harbor, Washington. And the community took a very blue collar approach, and I say that with affection, about getting the job done. They weren't looking for credit. They wanted to get their mission done, and they knew it was to support the air-to-ground, air-to-air efforts um, for, for the brothers and sisters in the air wing. And that ethos found its way into E18G Growler, and they're very, very successful and a very much in-demand platform now. How was it flying that? It was good. It was a lot like flying a five-wet Super Hornet, uh, the tanker version of the Super Hornet. And interestingly, it wasn't much different than flying the ES-6B Prowler. One of the things I found in flying the Super Hornet during my Air Wing Command tour is that um, the airplanes actually performed about the same. Really? The, the Super Hornet, which is larger and heavier, it's not as fast as an F-18C. So the fuel flows were the same. Yeah, it had afterburners, it had four fire and ordnance, but the flight characteristics of the EA-6B and the Super Hornet were pretty similar, especially when you slung those pods on the Super Hornet. It was remarkable in both fuel consumption, speed, and, and just performance. The good thing is they both handled very well around the ship, and I very much enjoyed, because I had the opportunity to fly both type model series operationally. Tuesday, I'd be flying a Super Hornet. Thursday, I'd be flying a Prowler around the ship. And I have airplanes have similar flight characteristics. Makes that just a smidge easier. Yeah, that's pretty cool. What, um, I guess, when it comes to mission set with the Growler, how do you see that performing compared to the Prowler? Maybe we're talking Nokia well, versus iPhone? Well, or? I think they can, work, they can work a range of things to electronic attack, counter IED, improvised explosive devices, uh, communications jamming, uh, and they're also a very, very good ISR platform, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, because the receiver set in the E18G is so sensitive, they're, they're just scooping up all these signals from the environment and will add to the body of knowledge in the, uh, in the warfighting arena that is vital today. The Joint Strike Fighter is a similar thing. It's so networked, it is very aware of the electromagnetic spectrum that's around it, the growler is additive to that, and the self-protection category of it allows it to operate without a lot of overhead, allowing those airplanes that would otherwise be providing escort to be in the air-to-ground, air-to-air mission. That's the biggest piece that I think the growler has brought to the to the playing field. It's fine. Plus, plus a reliability piece of this airplane. Now you got a common platform across 
you know, three or four squadrons right. as opposed to one off. Probably the maintenance aspect, all those things huge. that you're consolidating at huge. that point, huge. a huge difference. So, yep. sir, I know we got to kind of wrap up here. You're, you're a pretty busy guy. So what I like to ask my guests kind of towards the end is if you found 15, 16 year old, you walking down the street, is there any advice you would give him any tips, tricks, do something different, et cetera? Well, as I mentioned at the outset, I learned this at 22. You know, if you apply yourself just a little bit, that the preparation, I, I would counsel a 16-year-old Sterling Gillum who would probably loosely be characterized as a somewhat of a hellion to, hey, son, enjoy yourself, but there are more things out there. And if you just apply yourself a little bit and focus just a little bit, results will follow. I, being a late bloomer, I was lucky. I caught up to it, but I, there was a chance I could have missed that boat. And, and I'm really lucky I ran across that Navy recruiter in between economics classes my sophomore year. Right place, right time. Yep. Sir, I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to do this. You bet. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. We three members, hope you enjoyed this. You have to check out. We did a prowler breakdown, uh, really kind of in the weeds there, as well as the thing on career war. We got a lot of other awesome things coming out here. So hope you enjoy this. See you next time.